Thanks for checking out the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. To find out more about us, visit our website at iloveelevate.com. You can also stay up to date with what's going on by finding us on social media platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and Snapchat. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and sharing it with your friends. We hope you enjoy this message and it brings you closer to Jesus. This is 66 books of 20-something different authors that are attesting to the same thing. And when you see them together, they all paint the same picture. They all attest to the same God to each other. It's incredible. I love the Bible. I hope that some of that rubs off on you. Because the more you, it's like, I once heard that a baby can swim in it, but an elephant could drown. It's the idea that you could, day one, I just accepted Jesus, I'm not really sure where to go, and you open up the Bible and you're like, whoa, this is cool. I'm starting to get some of it. The baby can swim in it, a new Christian. But an elephant, someone that spends their whole life studying the Bible, can jump in and just be like, this is crazy. I can't even, I can't even understand the depths of it all. It is beautiful. So tonight we are looking at Mark chapter 11, just verses 1 through 11a, as in the first half of the verse of 11. And there is so much happening here, it gets me excited. So the book of Mark has been this beautifully woven tapestry, and it keeps asking us the question, who is Jesus? And Mark is hoping that we, the readers, will come to the conclusion of who Jesus is, of who Mark believes he is, of who Peter believes he is. And if you remember, Scott Roden, who did an amazing job speaking, I got to listen to it, he talked about how the transfiguration was like a hinge for the book of Mark, that things sort of change at the transfiguration. Directly before that, Jesus confronts the disciples and asks the very question that Mark is challenging us with. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. Christ is Greek. Messiah is Hebrew. Same thing. The anointed one that we've been waiting for. And it's like this big revelation, and they still only have like half a picture of it. Because when Jesus tests them and says, okay, the Messiah means that I'm going to go and die, be betrayed, and then I'm going to raise from the dead. And they're like, I, we can't even handle that. Because they can accept that he is some sort of like ruler or king kind of individual, but they're still trying to grasp what it means to be the one who will free them of sin and set up the kingdom of heaven. They're okay with Jesus sitting on a throne in a palace down the road, but they haven't wrapped their minds around him being the son of God. So who do, they, who do you say that I am? And so they make this declaration, you're the Messiah. And then Mark's like, okay, hey, Mr. Reader, the disciples aren't getting it yet, but Reader, just in case you haven't picked up on this yet, I'm going to hit you with the transfiguration so that at least from now on in the book, the Reader, even if the disciples are still lost in the story, the Reader can have a grasp. And Jesus transforms on this mountaintop, and Elijah and, and Moses show up, and his clothes and his face are shining, and this cloud comes down and says, this is my son, Disciples, get it. This is my son. And I hope that that seals the deal for you, that the answer of who is Jesus is he is the manifestation of Yahweh on earth. He is the very glory and presence of God in flesh on earth. And if you get that, then we can move forward because now the question changes. Okay, if you're the Messiah... How are you going to bring to pass all of those things that the Messiah is supposed to do? Set up a kingdom and reign for forever. 
purify God's people. Some of the signs would be like healing blind people, riding in the donkey, these kinds of things. But those are the two things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Jesus, how are you going to pull that off? So our question is going to change. Mark is now going to begin to unpack the question is of how will Jesus be the Messiah? How will he prove that he's the one they've been waiting on for forever? Are you all ready to dive in? All right. Stay ready. Because I'm going to go off topic for a minute. Back in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings chapter 18 through 20, and then also you can look at Isaiah 36 through 39, they're a parallel story. They're parallel accounts of the same story. Hezekiah is this king. He's the second to last good king of Judah, of God's people. After him, there's like a bad king, and then it's like Josiah, and Josiah is like amazing. And then basically after Josiah, it just like plummets downhill. Hezekiah comes in. He becomes king, and he starts a total reformation. He destroys idols, and he sets up worship in the temple again, and he just totally renovates the spiritual condition of God's people. It's amazing. But then the big, bad, nasty Assyrian army decides to come tromping through the territory. And this king named Sennacherib is like hardcore, and he's wiping out their cities and their towns, and he's just plowing through Israel. Actually, technically it's Judah, but it's Israel. It's God's people. And he comes right up to the gates of Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah is a smart king. He knew that Jerusalem was going to be the last stronghold. This is Helm's Deep. This is the last stronghold. So Hezekiah built an underground tunnel all the way out to the nearest water source, to a well. It took a massive undertaking, chiseling through solid rock, Two different teams of people had to be hammering from different directions. Imagine being underground in the dark with a candle and you're chiseling and these two people have to cover a bunch of distance and they have to somehow meet in the middle. Hard to do underground. And when they finally pulled it off, he buried the well so that no outside army outside the walls could find it. So they had running water. So Sennacherib surrounds the city. They're totally besieged. Nothing's getting in or out and they have water. They're a step ahead of everything else but they're surrounded. Now, Sennacherib was the kind of big, bad Assyrian king that does stuff like hurling dead bodies by catapult into the wall so that disease breaks out. He's the kind of big, bad king that takes any of the villagers that he happened to wipe up or the farmers outside, put them on stakes and surround the city so you look out and you see your neighbors and friends and family from the walls. And they're surrounded. And Hezekiah goes to God at the temple and says, God, what do I do? Where do we go from here? He cries out to Yahweh. And Isaiah, you all have heard that prophet before, right? Isaiah comes by and he says, I have a word from the Lord for you. Hang in there. Just don't give in. No matter how much they taunt you, no matter how much they press you, don't give up the city. Hang in there just a little longer. Meanwhile, if the situation can't get any worse, Hezekiah comes down with an illness. And God sends Isaiah again. And Isaiah comes... Hezekiah, God sent me with a message about your illness. You're going to die. There's no hope. Thanks. Thanks, Isaiah. That's great. So Isaiah is on the way out, and Hezekiah goes before the Lord again and weeps before the Lord. And it says that Isaiah hadn't even left the court of the king when God speaks to him, and he turns around and goes, Hezekiah, the Lord heard your prayer. Not only will you be fully restored health-wise, but God guarantees you 15 years beyond that which is kind of a ripe old age in that time. So Hezekiah's like, jazz. 
Then, sometime in the coming nights, in the middle of the night, they're held up behind their walls. Hezekiah is being faithful to the word of Isaiah, the word of God. And God goes through the camp all the way around the walls, and he kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. The Bible says that they woke up, and there's just bodies. Imagine how disheartening that is for Sennacherib, and Sennacherib retreats. Meanwhile, Sennacherib gets back home, and he's worshiping at his little weird idol god, and one of his sons comes in and murders him. God lays the smack down on his enemies, because Hezekiah was faithful. Because Hezekiah cleaned house and came before the Lord over and over again. So I want you to take that story and put that in your back pocket. That's going to get real important in a minute. Oh, I love this stuff. So recently we talked about blind Bartimaeus. Jesus comes and he heals him. Remember, Bartimaeus is crying out. Pastor Ben talked about it. He's crying out, and all the crowds try to get Jesus to ignore him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you bring him here. He's important to me. The upside-down kingdom, remember? Someone not. Pastor Ben did an amazing job talking about this. I don't know if you knew this, but according to Isaiah and the Psalms, it will be the Messiah and or God that will heal the blind and the only one who can heal the blind. Actually, in the book of John, after Jesus heals a blind guy, all the Pharisees and Sadducees that don't like him, they get together and they go, what do we do? This has never in our history been done before. All those Old Testament prophets, all those miracles, no one has ever healed someone blind before. We don't know how to handle this. In Matthew, John the Baptist sends messengers to Jesus and says, are you the coming Messiah? Are you the one? Tell it to me straight. And Jesus says, go back and tell John this. Blind eyes are being opened. It is a testimony to who Jesus is. And obviously, it must be a really big testimony because immediately after we pick up in Matthew chapter 11, people, something clicks in their minds. Jesus has healed the blind. He's done a whole bunch of other cool stuff. 11 verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt or a donkey tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found the colt outside the street, tied at a doorway, just like Jesus said. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered, as Jesus had told them to. And the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks over it. They took off their jackets, and they threw it over the colt. And he sat on it. And many people, as in the crowds are starting to pick up on something, they start throwing their jackets onto the road, while others start spreading branches that they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means, save us. Yahweh, save us. Things are starting to click in their heads. Something about this Jesus guy riding on this donkey is starting to make sense to them. Those who went ahead and those who shouted, who followed shouted, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They're getting it. He's the Messiah. It's clicking for everybody. Yeah! Now, spoiler, these are the same people that are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. So, you know, don't get too excited yet. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. You're still with me? This is all going to start connecting here in a minute. So this is God in flesh. This is Yahweh coming to the temple courts immediately after he heals Bartimaeus. They're figuring it out. They figured out that he's Messiah. They still think he's going to be like this earthly king sitting on a 
a throne made of wood or swords or something. But he is this, he is this Messiah they've been waiting for. Now at Solomon's temple dedication, Solomon built this big, beautiful temple. They were all excited about it. It took them a long time. Whenever Solomon dedicated and prayed, you can go and read about it in 2 Chronicles 7. It says that like fire from heaven, like think Elijah kind of stuff, fire from heaven comes down in a cloud on the temple. And it was so thick. And the presence and glory of God at his temple was so thick that people couldn't speak. The, the priests couldn't preach anymore. They couldn't sing. They couldn't do anything. The weight was so on them. All they could do is just bow before the Lord. There was like this physical awesomeness that happened at the temple. Now, the temple gets wiped out. <laughs> they get enslaved, taken to Babylon. And then they're sent back. And they try to rebuild the temple. They try to make it beautiful and everything. And then Herod the Great, the same guy that kills all the kids, the Great, comes in and he tries to make the temple extra beautiful, probably just to make himself look good. And they have this dedication and nothing happens. They're like, Solomon stuff, cloud, fire, yeah! Nothing. This is Yahweh coming to his temple. Do you understand the depth of that? This is the actual manifestation of God in all of his glory. Presence on earth is now. Not a fire, not cloud. This is Yahweh in flesh, and he is coming to his temple. And next week, come back next week, because we're going to actually talk about the ramifications and the awesome of of that. So cliffhanger there. He is coming to his temple. Ezekiel, remember I told you big, beautiful temple, and it gets wiped out? Before the temple got wiped out, Ezekiel says that he saw the glory of God leave. They've never seen that glory come back. Ezra and Haggai are where you can read about. Now they build the temple and it says they weep. Nothing happens. So I want to go back to Malachi. This is the last book of the Old Testament. We read this at the very beginning of the series. So this is God's last words before a 400-year gap, and then John the Baptist and Jesus comes on the scene. So God is like holding them over, like hang in there. Wait for a little while. I'm coming. Be patient. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. You ready for this? It's about to get cool. I'm so excited. All right. Malachi 3, verse 1. Lord, which is all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh will finally come to his temple and purify it. Come back next week. Oh, it's going to be so good. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. He's preparing the way for me, as in God speaking. He's preparing the way for me. And the Lord, whom you seek, as in me, the Lord speaking, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. So God's saying, when I come, I'm coming to the temple. Let's keep going. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. So as in... He's going to come, and he's going to purify God's people. He's going to purify people like how they purify silver. They get this cauldron, and they heat it up so much that everything melts. The silver melts, and all the dirt and nastiness rises to the top. And then they scrape all of that dross off the top. Or maybe like a launderer of soap. Imagine bleach, and you're just rubbing it into this cloth, trying to get it white again. God's going to come and do that to his people. Like a refiner and a purifier of silver, he'll purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. He's going to prepare his people and make them righteous, holy, 
unto God. So we know. So we learn from Malachi. God's like, okay, silence for a while, but I'm back. And when I come back, I'm coming to the temple. But then Malachi goes on in the next chapter, and we get another glimpse, a little bit more about what that might look like. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2 through 3. But you who fear my name, but to you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, not S-O-N, S-U-N, like the bright thing out there, the sun of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. Like, life's going to be good. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. So you have to, like, imagine the picture of the sun, S-U-N, bright, glowing, powerful, beautiful, with healing in his wings. Imagine the sun with, like, rays of light, light wings. Actually, we have, that was, that's been our graphic. If you've been here any time in the last three months, you've seen our graphic for this series. This is that. Because this is actually an ancient symbol that goes way back. Way, 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 way back. Ancient Mesopotamia, Egypt, Babylon, all of those ancient cultures, you'll find a common symbol throughout all of them. And it's the idea of a winged sun. It's like this disc and it has wings on it. And Malachi, God is speaking to Malachi, and he's using an image that they recognize, that they know, to try to describe himself of what he's going to come like. Most ancient religions, they worship the top of their pantheon, the most powerful God that they came up with was the sun God, right? Think about them. Go back in time. Look at your ancient religions. Almost every one of them worship the sun as the highest God in their you know, hierarchy of gods. Yahweh is compared to the sun. In Psalm 84.11, it says that he is our sun and our shield, means he gives us light and protection. About Jesus, think about this. Jesus says, I am the light of the... That's a comparison to the sun. Not like a spotlight, not a bright candle. He's, he's relating himself to, I am the light of the world. I am what shows up and illuminates everything. As a reference to the sun. In Matthew 17.2, at the transfiguration, it says that his face shone like the... At Revelation, when he comes back riding a horse, it says his face will shine like the... All right, so we have this commonality. But Isaiah, remember how integral he is to the story. Isaiah writes in verse 60, Arise, shine. If you all have your Bibles, check them out. This, this is cool. Arise. Okay, that's a reference to something. Arise like the sun rises. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness on the people. But the Lord will arise over you. It's that image of the sun again. And his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. We're going to jump forward to verse 19, 60, verse 19. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. The sun shall no longer be your light by day. Nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God, your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your morning shall be ended. Also, your people shall all be righteous. There's that word again of what God does. They shall inherit the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. So Isaiah takes it to another level. All those other references I made are like how 
Yahweh is like the sun. And Isaiah goes a step further and says, no, no, no. Yahweh surpasses, exceeds, supersedes the sun. He is so bright, so glorious, so magnificent that you don't even need the sun anymore. You won't even have the sun for light because his radiance will be so far above what we can imagine. So whenever we say the son of righteousness will come to the temple with healing on his wings, it's starting to have a little more weight to it. But that's not all. In 2009, in an archaeological dig, they uncovered the royal seal, the ring, signet ring pressing of Hezekiah. They published it just in 2014. This is new news. They uncovered it. <laughs> Hezekiah's seal is this. It is a son. Oh, wait, wait, wait. I forgot one of the most cool parts of the story. Hezekiah, right? Remember how I said he was going to, like, die? Remember that? Yeah. And then Isaiah comes back and like, oh, no, you're going to live, you know, 15 years, fully healed. Yeah. Hezekiah is like, hold on, hold on. Isaiah, this is good news, but what is a sign that I'm going to be fully healed? And Isaiah says this on behalf of God. He says, Hezekiah, do you want the sun to go forward or backwards? <laughs> And Hezekiah is like, well, of course the sun goes forward. I want to see it go backwards. And so the temple would cast a shadow over what's called the steps of Ahaz. And the shadow moved backwards up the steps, 10 steps, as a sign to Hezekiah that he'd be fully healed. So when Hezekiah's royal seal has a sun in the middle, you know that's cool. It's referencing this amazing miracle. That's like one of the coolest miracles of the whole Bible because we know the sun doesn't actually go around. The sun stays there. The earth goes. That means God went and grabbed the earth. That's wild. And you didn't fly off? Hezekiah didn't fly off. That's so cool. Now, it's not just the sun. It refers back to that ancient symbol that they all know. It's a sun with wings on it. But it's not wings that are outstretched like this, like every other one. It's wings that are curved downward. And they're curved downward for two reasons. One, it represents protection. Like the kind of protection against the Assyrian army that surrounded them and threatened their very lives, day in and day out. It's also how a bird turns its wings when it flies backwards. Again, a reference to that sun. And on both sides of the winged sun is a little like, it kind of looks like a cross with a loop on top. If you saw it, you'd be like, yeah, yeah, I know that. It's the Egyptian symbol for life, new life. Hezekiah was going to die, and God says, I'm giving you your life back. So Hezekiah's seal is a winged sun with the symbols of life on both sides. <laughs> and that's not all. If my city went against your city in battle, my city's God would be seen as going against your city's God. And then whoever won, we would say it was the bigger, better God. Right? Guess what the number one most powerful god of Assyria was? Asher, the sun god. So you have to understand that this is Isaiah talking to Hezekiah, who is sick, who's surrounded, who's scared, and they're looking out at the Assyrian army, and the Assyrian army is going, our god's bigger than your god. And Isaiah goes, watch this. Puny god. My God can move their God at will, under his control, anytime he wants. 
Where's the Hulk? Puny God. Your Asher is nothing compared to Yahweh. What, what a sign. What a symbol to Hezekiah that everything's going to be okay. How powerful and amazing is that? Jesus, the Messiah, the manifest presence of Yahweh on earth, came to a temple made of stone. But Jesus is doing a new thing because his temple on earth was not meant to be contained in a building. You remember what happened at Jesus' death? Earthquake, darkness, the curtain of the Holy of Holies in the temple ripped as in God's presence exploding throughout all the earth. His presence was already there, but it's a symbol for them to look to, to say, God is with his people. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus has died, he's rose again, and he said, by the way, guys, I'm going to take off, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you an orphan. I'm going to send my presence to be with you. And so 50 days after his launch off the top of the mountain, man, I wish I could have seen that. Was there smoke when he, like, launched? I don't know. Ascension. <laughs> Three, two, one, lift off. I don't know. My mind is twisted. 50 days after that was called the day of Pentecost. And all the disciples, scared for their lives because of everything that's going on, they're in this upper room and they're praying together. That's where we're going to pick up. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost, 50 days had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire. And one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Is this sounding familiar to anybody? It should sound like the dedication of the first temple where God's presence came down in fire and his presence was so thick that they couldn't speak, except in reverse, because they start speaking in crazy language and everyone's understanding what they're saying and they're giving testimony and glory to God. This is, this is Yahweh coming to his temple, but it's not made of bricks and stone. It's not made of gold and fabric. It's not stuck in one place. This is Yahweh coming to his people and making them his temple and filling us Those who call on the name of the Lord are filled with the Holy Spirit. Check this out. 1 Corinthians 9, 6, 19-20 says this, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, so that you're not your own? You are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are all God's. Everything that we are. When you come to that point in your life that you say, I'm ready to repent. I'm done being this old version. I'm, I need Jesus. I need, I need him in my life. I need my sins to be forgiven. I give you my life, Lord. I believe that Jesus was your son. I believe that he died and rose again. And we come to that point. There's a great exchange that happens. Our sin for his righteousness. Our old self for his presence. And he comes and dwells in us. And we are now empowered through that presence. I'd love to have someone come up and play keys for a couple minutes. We now become the place where his presence dwells on earth. 
And it was actually today. My kid, Dom, the oldest one, he's like four, and he's ridiculously awesome. Like, awesome Dominic, awesome Dominic. See the difference? He is in a Christmas play at MDO, and he got to be Joseph for Christmas. Wow. He has like six lines. It's crazy. I'm trying to get my four-year-old to memorize lines. Today, he's, he's on stage, and they're going through the play. And, and you all know Rachel who runs MDO, Rachel and Pastor Matt Carnes' wife. She tells Dominic, okay, Dominic, when the angel shows up, you have to be afraid. I kid you not, my son says this. I'm not afraid because the Lord is with me. <laughs> it's a four-year-old who's starting to connect with the idea that he walks with the presence of God in him. Like, that's wild. If my four-year-old can figure it out, guys, let's do it. Let's stop being so afraid. Let's stop walking like we're sinners. Take off the label sinner and put on the righteousness of Christ. Hello, my name is covered by Jesus' blood. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit, God's presence on earth. And God would come to a virgin girl and say, you're it. The Messiah, me. You are going to be the mother. And his name will be Emmanuel. God with us. Don't lose the power of that name. Every other God is distant. Every other idea, every other religion that worships a false idol that has some sort of made-up deity is distant. There's no connection there. And you have to be good enough to maybe learn a little more and to work your way up in some sort of hierarchy. But our faith begins day one. Jesus, I'm yours. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm leading you. And you know what? I'm convicting the pants off of you. When you go back to your old ways, when you're trying to sin again, whenever your mind wanders there, I'm there going, hello, come back. I made you holy. Don't, don't stain that. He's the one that brings us back to our knees again and say, I blew it again. And he's like, gotcha, launderer's soap, refining fire. You're, you're forgiven again. He's the one in us that gives us hope and purpose and direction. He's the one that gives us peace in the craziest, craziest of circumstances. Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, God is with you. My message for you guys tonight, and this is a message that God is talking to my heart, I'm preaching to me right now, is that God is with you. He protects us, he purifies us, he gives us life. He protects us, those wings. Remember when Jesus talked to, about Jerusalem? He said, oh, Jerusalem, I wish I could be like a hen and gather you under my wings. You can say yes to that. Jesus, I'm yours. I want to be under your wings. He purifies you. I need, a, I need a savior. I got you. Let me give you life and life abundantly. You think the things of this world are so big and scary? You think they're so bright and dark and whatever they are, and God's like, hold on. I'm a flex on you right here. There's nothing. There's nothing surrounding your walls. There's nothing 
that can come up and hold a candle to your God who is in you. Emmanuel. All right. We're going to have e-groups tonight. They're going to be kind of brief. We got 20 minutes. Your e-group leaders I'd like you to ask, what are the implications of how life is different if we actually grasped the fact that God lives in us, walks with us, is in us? Unpack that with your students tonight. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good. You are so powerful. And you are so near. Forgive us when we forget. Hold on, last thought. There's this great guy who's super smart, A.W. Tozer. And he said this, you guys know that God's presence is everywhere, right? You can go to outer space, he's with you. You can go to the depths of the ocean, he's with you. And he said this, he says, you know the difference between God's universal presence and his manifest presence is this. God is everywhere already. But the difference between being everywhere but being with you is nothing more than just a recognition and a remembrance that he's there. When you recognize that he's there, it's like the difference between sitting on a park bench and not knowing someone's there. And then you look over and you're like, oh, okay, now we can have a conversation. So often we walk around totally oblivious that he's walking with us down the hallway, that he's with us in the dark place, that he's with us when we're on our phones, that he's with us in and out. When we're in the scary situation or having this argument, he's with us. If we can start snapping our brains to remember that he's manifested right here, right now in me, empowering me for this situation, how would we walk our lives different? May we begin to fill all the little brain gaps of our lives when we're like focused on this and then we're like, oh yeah, I'm about, I got to get into this box now. May this space now be a, a jump back to his presence with us. Let us snap back over and over again throughout the day that he is walking with us. He is near. And then just maybe all those little gaps in between will start bleeding into the activities themselves. Let us walk in his presence. Okay. Heavenly Father, you are with us. It is an honor to serve you. Lord, I pray that you will empower these e-group leaders. Thank you, Lord, for Hezekiah. Thank you for his faithfulness. Thank you for his boldness and willingness to wait on you. Thank you, Lord, that you came to your temple. Lord, and I pray that you're already preparing our hearts next week as we talk about what that means. How incredible it was when Jesus stepped onto the scene. Lord, you are the son of righteousness. You come with healing in your wings. Heal our hearts tonight. Thank you, Lord, for every man and woman of God in this room. And Lord, if there's anyone in this room that hasn't called on you as their Lord, I pray, Lord, that you are you're tugging on their heart. You're pricking them over and over again. Surround them with people that they respect, that are going to place words of wisdom and words of truth into their life. Dog them down. Let them not have peace until they call on you as Lord. Let's be real here. Lord, let them know full joy when they call on you. You are our king. You are the son of righteousness. You are the Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen.